Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. I wanted to just put this up here is because the Bible Project is an absolutely phenomenal resource. So those of you who are parents, for your kids, they have uh, Bible devotionals and, and all kinds of videos and animation to help you understand books of the Bible better. And the thing I love about it is it's deeply connected to the best scholarship around. It's like, it's really solid stuff. So that's the bibleproject.com. They have, uh, they have Bible studies. They have devotionals for every book of the Bible. They have uh, videos that you can go through that help explain to you the context and stuff. It's a great way to go through this stuff. And one of, part of our mission here at Crossview, part of our value is we actually want values, is we want to actually connect our people. We want to connect those of you who are online and those of you who are coming here who are part of our church. We want to connect you to the best resources for understanding Scripture. That's important to us because if you look at our mission statement, the Bible, we've got it drawn under our pillars, our values, and our mission of worshiping Jesus, we've got the Bible and the good news of Jesus Christ as the foundation of everything we're doing. And if the, if the Bible is truly foundational to everything we're doing, then actually we can't be haphazard about how we interpret it. We want to we wanna do as good a job as we possibly can of understanding this thing appropriately. And so that is a really important thing to us at Crossview is we want to connect you guys uh, to good stuff. We can't be off. One of the things is we do not want to be off on our own. You know, it, uh, you know me and, and the preaching team and, and Bill and Caleb and, and uh, Chris Sloan and stuff, if we're preaching stuff here at Crossview that's just kind of our own unique take on things, we are not in a good place. We want to be connected to the most trustworthy. What is the rest of the body of Christ saying? What are wise, godly theologians and scholars saying so that's really important to us and that's something we always want to talk to you guys about and that brings up something else here that I want to put up and that is I want to give you a little peek behind the curtain for this revelation series a little peek behind the curtain for this revelation series this revelation series that we're doing some of you might be thinking like where are you getting this stuff like you and the preaching team you just kind of bang your heads together and you know eat some pizza late at night and whatever comes to you in your dreams and the next morning your devos that's just what you kind of preach to us and the answer is no because like i said before we want to be connected you know what as a local church we have to remember that the body of christ is not just the local church here at Crossview, we must be deeply connected to the stream of wisdom and God's body in the rest of the world. And so one of the things that we did in preparation for this series and that we do for all of our series here is we tap into, we don't want to just follow, like, what, what did one guy over here say or, or what did we make up and say? We want to go to the best, most respected evangelical scholars of our day and say, what are they saying about this book? And so some of the names, if you want to get a peek behind the curtain for this Revelation series, some of the names that have been guiding us along here in terms of understanding the context and the language and the interpretation are guys like N.T. Wright and Richard Bachman, Bachman, Michael Gorman, Craig Keister, Gordon Fee, Ian Paul, and David De Silva. Now, we actually, there's several others I could have put in there, but Chris Lowen stopped me. He said, in the book of Revelation, the number seven is a special number. So we'll just name for you the seven, okay? We've got the seven tr trumpets, the seven seals, the seven bowls, and the seven theologians. There's actually more than this, but uh, we thought we would stick with the seven. And so, again, one of the reasons I bring this up is this is so vital. It's not just about revelation. This is about how we as a church 
how we move forward and how we understand Scripture together. See, one of the things in our culture, and we often talk about this in, our, in, uh, in Western churches, evangelical churches, we often talk about how we live in a very individualistic culture. The thing is, we don't often realize how individualism has snuck its way into many of the things we do at church. And one of the ways that individualism has snuck its way into church is that we actually have come to assume that on my own, that everybody on their own, you just give me a Bible and I'll just pray and figure it out. Now, first of all, we should read our Bibles. This is God's word. We want to meditate on it. It is food for our soul. But we don't only want to do that on our own, isolated from the greater body of Christ. See, because we need the whole body. It's not just the local church. When we think of Paul's analogy of the body of Christ, we often think of just within a local church. But the body of Christ is actually the universal church. So what are, you know, some of the people God has raised up who have spent their entire lives in the original languages, who love Jesus, who are, you know, the history. What is, you know, some of what the body of Christ is saying and the theologians and the scholars, what are they saying? We need to pay attention to that. And you know, like in my younger years, I can start to say that now because I'm 43, okay? But a little over 13 years ago, I was in my very early 30s, just coming out of my 20s, I preached, as many of you know, a very sensationalistic uh, series on the end times that was very popular with some, very unpopular with others, but was certainly well known in this little area around Steinbach. And, uh, and so... People have asked me, like, where, where, did he, you know, where did that stuff come from? Because obviously, some of the stuff we're doing here in this series is quite a different take. And people wonder, like, where did you come up with that other stuff? Well, you know, one of the things, and it's, and it's people who love Jesus, but when I preached other series, and I, I meant it, I, I was into it all the way, but I, I followed along very closely on the writings of a very popular uh, prayer ministry in the United States, wonderful people, I won't even name them here, wonderful people who love Jesus, we will be in heaven with them, who were very motivated at the time, I think they probably still are, but by a very, uh, very visceral sense of end times fervor. And one of the things after I preached that series, a few years after I preached that series, I began to be a little nervous because Anytime I would read commentaries, people that I really respected who, you know, knew the original languages and knew, you know, the first century context and the people who are really respected in the evangelical world, I became nervous because I wasn't reading anything of what I had taught in these commentaries. And that is not a very good feeling. By the way, to publicly, to many, many people, teach some things and then a few years later find out, oh, wait a minute. And one of the things that I learned, I learned a very important lesson there, and that is the need for the whole body of Christ. And this isn't just about revelation. This is about how, as a church and as a church family here at Crossview, we function with the Bible. We don't trust ourselves enough to think that we know how to figure this out on our own. And so it's important that we connect back, and part of that is our job. I don't expect all of you guys, you know, to get home from work, whatever it is you do, and at the end of the day, dig into seven thick books like this. That's some of our job. That's what we get paid to do. But we do want to connect you with things like the Bible Project and other uh, resources like that, because if the Bible truly is our foundation, then we should invest in understanding it wisely and properly. Amen? And that's a huge value for us here and for myself and a life lesson. So anyway, in this series then, we keep repeating four things. 
Because there's four things that all Christians, we can be confident of when it comes to the book of Revelation. We can be exceedingly confident about four things. Christians, past and present, scholars, lay people, and pastors. Revelation declares that Jesus is Lord. Revelation promises that Jesus is coming to set up his kingdom on earth. These things we can all agree on, okay? Number three, Revelation proclaims that all the wicked kingdoms of this earth will be judged. And number four, Revelation encourages us to be faithful to Jesus, to persevere, and to not compromise. Now, where we're going to spend the rest of our time here today is on number one, Revelation declares that Jesus is Lord. Now, here's the thing. If I had written Revelation, it would be a lot shorter than what we see here in this book. Why couldn't Revelation just say, Jesus is Lord? done. Right? Why? Like, have you ever thought about that? You know, if we Westerners, if I had put the Bible together, I bet you I could get it into one or two pages. I could for sure get it into one page. Here's here's everything you need to know from the Bible. God created the earth. People really screwed up. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. Put your faith in him. Jesus is Lord. He's coming back someday to set up his kingdom. Done. One page. I think for many of us, by the way, you'd have a lot less denominations. Like we got 45,000 denominations out there because of this book. My Bible would have way less denominations. There'd be way less to fight over, and it would really stink. See, God in his wisdom gave us the book we have, not necessarily the book we always want, or the easiest book to read and understand. That he didn't do. Because in his infinite wisdom... He knows that there's something good about us. This book is meant to humble us, and it does over and over and over again. Because we come to this thing and we realize generation after generation, we are forced to wrestle with it again, and something in the wrestling together as the body of Christ is very good for the people in the body of Christ. And so... Instead of just saying, Jesus is Lord, Revelation goes 22 chapters of some pretty wild and fantastic stuff. Now, why is that? Many, many reasons, but one reason is that in the first century province of Asia in the empire of Rome, in fact, the entire Roman Empire, there was competition for this title of Lord. And this is something that we, 2,000 years later, don't catch on to because nobody in our country is claiming to be lord okay and if they did they would be mocked now i you know say what you will about our prime minister we live in a free country right and no doubt many of you here disagree at times with some of the things our prime minister does okay i see some eyes raised i see some smiles that is enough But one thing our prime minister has not done, no matter how much you might or might not disagree with our prime minister, one thing our prime minister has not done is he has not gotten up in front of everybody and said, I am God. Build temples to me in all of your cities, bow your knee and worship me or lose your life and lose your job. That he has not done. But do you know that in first century Rome, that is exactly what these Christians' prime minister, that's not what he was called, he was called a Caesar, was claiming. Here's a very famous inscription. We've shown this in in messages before, but I believe very firmly in the principle that people don't remember things until they've seen them seven times. Consider this number two. 
Providence has given us Augustus, that was a famous Caesar in the first century, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior. Can you imagine what the late night talk show hosts would do to any world leader today who said, I am your savior? They would skewer him. But in the first century, Rome, this is what Caesar was claiming, both for us and for our descendants. The audacity, this guy's head was really big. Okay? And then we go on. We're not done. That he might end war. Like, some of these things, by the way, will sound very Jesus-like, and that's not an accident. And arrange all things, and since he, Caesar, by his appearance, how often in the New Testament we, we hear about the things that Jesus is going to do by his appearance, was the beginning of good tidings. And the Greek word here is euangelion, the exact same word. It means we've used it now for evangelism, for good news. It is the exact same word that Luke uses in his gospel in the Christmas story when Jesus is born. It's the good tidings. It is not an accident that Luke is using that word. The New Testament writers are writing very politically offensive things in the first century. They are taking titles that Caesar is claiming for himself, and they're saying, Caesar's not the Savior. Caesar's not the one who's going to bring peace. Jesus is the true king of the universe and king of the world. Good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. There's another one, the emperor Domitian, and we can find, we could just spend an hour just going through this kind of stuff. Domitian was the emperor uh, around the time when uh, the book of Revelation was written. And some of the things, and we could, I could put a bunch more quotes, but this is just what I put on this screen here. But one of the things that the famous Roman poets at the time were writing was that he was the world's sure salvation. In fact, he wanted people to say this of him. And our blessed protector and savior. Okay? So now, of course, we look at that and we go, that's ridiculous. Like, who, if someone claimed that even today, it wouldn't, you know, none of us would, would be duped by that, I doubt. Be like, he's a crazy person, right? But now imagine this. Imagine that this isn't just what the emperor, some distant government person, is telling you, I'm the savior. Imagine that everybody around you believes it. Okay? Now here's one of the things I know about human psychology. Okay? Is that when a whole bunch of people start believing something around you, it becomes a lot more believable. Isn't that true? I don't even need to go further than that, do I? Okay? When a whole bunch of people around you start believing something, it starts to be believable. When the whole Roman Empire, particularly this, uh, the book of Revelation was written specifically to seven churches in the province of Asia. The province of Asia was a hotbed. The, The cities in Asia were stumbling over themselves to outdo each other in worshiping the emperor. They were fighting amongst each other. Who gets to build the biggest temple to the emperor? Who is the most faithful to the emperor? And in these places, they had feasts, they had festivals, they had parades throughout the year, worshiping the emperor. It could be tied to your employment. It could be tied at times to your life. So what happens when everybody around you, it's not just the government from far telling you this, it's the people around you. There's this whole culture of, let's worship the emperor. It's good for our city. It's good for us. And so one of the major reasons why Revelation was written and why it's long and why it doesn't just say Jesus is Lord is Revelation is going to, in God's wisdom, using imagery 
you know, very vivid imagery and colorful language and all, not, not in the sense of swear words. I didn't think of that until after, but, you know, colorful language, you know, whatever. It's not going to work. I can't get there. But, but it's going to use very vivid imagery for the third time to bring home this point that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. This is a huge point of the entire book. And until you see that, you're not going to get chapter after chapter is just going to go over your head. This is a huge point why John is writing. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And I could show you so many passages, but I only get to pick one because I don't have all evening with you. But let's start right, for example, in Revelation chapter 1. Here's what Revelation chapter 1 says in the intro about Jesus. Famous verse. I am the Alpha and the Omega. So A and Z of the, of the Greek alphabet, right? Says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. Now, most of us, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard this verse. You've seen it preached on, right? And at face value, it's just an epic title for God. It's a really cool name. Like, wow, John comes up with these epic names. And even if we don't go any further than that, good enough, it's an epic name for Jesus. Okay, it's an epic description of God. Except that John didn't just come up with this on his own. He is making a very direct poke in the eye to the primary Roman god, the king of the Roman pantheon, who was Zeus, of whom it was said in the first century. This is one of the things that was said about Zeus. Zeus was, Zeus is, Zeus shall be. Oh, great Zeus. Right in the intro to Revelation, what is John doing? He's taking the king of the Roman pantheon, and he's saying, actually, <clears throat> it's not Zeus. It's Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the truly the one who is and who was and who is to come. By the way, oh, I, I can't go down this rabbit trail. It is very interesting don't go down the rabbit trail, that he's coming and Zeus just is. But okay, don't go down there. Okay, just get rid of this before I get tempted. Now, because that says something about the physicality of Jesus and his kingdom on earth, which is very exciting, but that's for a different time. Anyway, John does not only pick on that once, he comes back to it in Revelation 17. And I want you to notice, you have to remember again in Rome, Caesar is claiming to be God, the one who ends wars, which is super ironic when he's the guy who's conquering everyone with brutality and violence and crucifixion, okay? But Rome is this lovely empire. It's this amazing empire. And look at all the things. And they build all these roads. And they build all these amazing buildings. And then John just calls them the beast. The beast, which you saw. Now notice this again. He's drawing on Caesar, he's drawing on Zeus, he's drawing on his introduction of Jesus. Look at this, the beast which you saw once was playing on these Roman religious concepts, now is not, what, what's with the not? We'll talk about that in just a moment. And yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. Highly political. What you're saying, beautiful Rome, the hope of the world, Caesar our savior, is actually his power comes from the abyss and it's going to be destroyed. And John's like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. The hope of the world, the Pax Romana, the peace, the height of human achievement, the Roman Empire, it's a beast. It's from the abyss. It's going to destruction. And again, he plays on this was, is, and will come. Now, in this case, we see this is not. What is this is not all about? And again, these things, and, and these are things that as common readers to the scriptures, we miss these things 2,000 years later, and it humbles us. And so we go and we ask for help from the body of Christ. 
from history, from theology, from, from scholars to say, what is going on here? What is he speaking to? Well, one of the things that was very well known in the first century, so in the first century uh, in Rome, one of the most famous emperors, or infamous, I should say, was the emperor Nero, okay? So Nero is the one, he blamed Christians for a big fire that happened in Rome, and then put Christians on poles and, and literally burnt them as torches in his garden, okay? Like, li- literally, here in Canada, our problems, and we do have real problems, and it's okay to talk about those problems and pray about those problems, but we don't have problems compared to problems, That's a good thing to always keep in perspective. But anyway, that was Nero. He died in about 68 AD. And after he died, there was a conspiracy theory. By the way, conspiracy theories didn't just start in the 21st century. Did you know that? Conspiracy theories have always been around because human beings, as long as there's been human beings, there's been these sorts of things. And so the first century, a very, it was such a popular well-known conspiracy theory was called the Nero Redivivus, the Nero Revives conspiracy, that it actually inspired several actual rebellions in the Roman Empire where people impersonating uh, Nero returned. And you can look all this stuff up, but where you can look it up in encyclopedias or wherever you want, but where people impersonating Rome actually tried to rebel against Rome, pretending to be Nero. But here was the conspiracy theory. The conspiracy theory was, there was two, two, two kinds of conspiracy theory. One was, Nero died in 68 AD, but he's going to be raised from the dead and come back at the head of an army to reconquer the Roman Empire. That was terrifying to Christians, and it was also terrifying to most of the other Romans because Nero was crazy. So there was a whole bunch of people in the empire that thought he was going to raise from the dead and come from the east. And by the way, a whole bunch of things in Revelation 13 start to make more sense. But there was another side of the conspiracy, which was people just thought he didn't actually die, he just went to the east. He just went into hiding. He's going to come back an army. John is drawing on all of this stuff, which again, in the first century makes sense. All of this stuff makes sense to them because it was written to them. It wasn't meant to be. He's not thinking of making something hard to understand. But later on, 2,000 years later, we come along and we have to come with open, humble hands. We say, God, help us. And we need others to understand this. But anyway, John's pulling on this when he says, and once was, he's pulling on Nero. He's pulling on Zeus is not and yet will come. But his point is, you don't have to fear it anyway. Up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. Abyss, destruction, beast. Jesus is Lord. The Roman gods are not. Now, this brings something up. First of all, a beautiful picture. Taken by Sarah Harder there at the back. Give us all a wave, Sarah. Those of you who are online can't see her. I apologize. Um, one of the things, when we think of Rome as being a beast, we have to think about the fact, and that's where I'm going to come to this call in just a moment, that what the things that are often beautiful to us, or some, I should say sometimes, a flower is beautiful, you know, a little three-year-old kid can be beautiful in their own sense, you know, very cute. But there are some things that are beautiful to us as humans that are ugly to God. Did you know that? So, and one of those things often revolves around empire. So the things that impress us, so even now, 2,000 years later, when we learn about the Roman Empire in school, we usually learn about it from a place of like, wow, they were amazing. 
They built roads. They built boats. They increased trade. They built incredible buildings like the Colosseum. And here it is, 2,000 years later, it's still standing. Do you know that in its day, it could seat 50 to 80,000 people? It was like a modern NFL football stadium, okay? It just didn't have Wi-Fi, right? But here's the inside. I mean, it was intricate. Underneath, so this is underneath what was on the floor. They had all these, like, crazy, I can't even explain it all, but they had uh, special tunnels and gimmicks and stuff, and that's for, you know, when they would kill people and animals and stuff. Really disgusting. But that's my whole point. We look back at this and we say, wow, and in the, Rome, in the first century uh, uh, A.D., Everybody thought Rome was amazing, and Rome thought she was amazing. Look at the buildings. Look at the economy. Look at the roads. This is incredible. And what people see as amazing, God sees something else. He sees blood and death and violence and idolatry, and he says, this is a beast. What's beautiful to people is sometimes ugly to God. And there was this dark underbelly to Rome. If you were poor, there was lots of poverty. And if you were a Christian, there was a very dark underbelly to Rome. And so in Revelation 18, we get the culmination of all these judgments on Rome. And we see this, woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones. Those are the things that impress us. These are the things that impress us. And pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, horses and carriages, and then look at this, and human beings sold as slaves. We see all the glit and the glitter, and God says, I see slavery, brutality, and violence. Therefore, I don't see something beautiful. I see something that is a beast out of the abyss, and it will be destroyed. So then we have this practical application. Earlier in this same chapter, and Chris Lowen touched on this just briefly last week in his message. In verse 4 of the same chapter, we have this practical application. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her. So that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Now, this come out of her is not talking about a physical coming out. Where would they have gone? How would they have left? Okay, most of the Christians, some of them were, were doing okay, um, but some, like in Laodicea, there were some wealthy Christians, but many of them were very poor. There was nowhere to run. This is, the practical application is not to physically come out. This is talking about not participating. Rome claims to be the ultimate and the pinnacle, but she is filled with idolatry, worship, worship the emperor. She's filled with sexual immorality. She's filled with slavery and brutality and violence. And John is saying, don't share with her in those things. Now, how does that apply to us today? And this is one of the parts where we actually need the body of Christ together. Because here's, the, here's where some of these things become a real struggle. What do you do with a letter that was written to people who were poor and oppressed and being asked, not asked, being told by their government to get on their knees and not worship the emperor in a metaphorical sense, but in a real sense, to bow and pray to him. What do you do with a letter that was written to people in that circumstance when you're reading it in a culture 2,000 years later 
where you live in a free country, where there is no emperor, and the government isn't asking you to bow your knee and actually worship them as, as an idol, it can be very easy to metaphor and allegorize things and literally go off in all kinds of extreme tangents. Isn't that true? So we actually have to wrestle with, then, in our context, how do we apply this come out of for my people? Because every empire, every system will have its sins, but they don't all look the same, and they aren't all the same. Well, if we look through history over the last few centuries, we can look at examples of coming out of for my people. I think of Christians in the American South several centuries ago. When, who resisted at cost sometimes of their possessions, sometimes at threat to their lives, but who, who stood up and resisted slavery in the American South. That, that would be one example of, we're not participating in this system, we're standing against this system. Another potential example, those Christians who, you know, in the last century, stood up against things like residential schools and would have said, look, actually, taking children from their parents just because they're indigenous, actually isn't like Jesus. That's a, just a terrible thing. People, that would have been an example of coming out of her, my people. But there's thousands of different examples and ways. Some of those brave Russians we read about and see, some of them Christians, some of them not, but who have stood up and said, like, look, actually, we can't support this kind of thing. Some of them are in prison. Some of them probably will be disappeared. It's horrible. That's another example of some people who have had to live this out. Come out of for my people. We're not, we're not going to join in the sins of our empire. But what does this look like again for us today? Our country isn't at war with anyone. Our country does not sanction slavery. Our government doesn't do those things. So what does it mean for us to come out of her? What does it mean for us to apply come out of her, my people? I don't know all the answers to that, but I can tell you one thing. We can go back to the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Revelation have to go hand in hand. And here's something we know for sure. However we apply that come out of her, my people, Jesus says this, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. This is Jesus. And this one always applies. For they will, what? Inherit the earth. Caesar and the powers of the abyss and evil inherit and try to inherit and conquer the earth through force and violence and brutality. You know how Jesus' kingdom takes the earth? Through meekness gentleness, kindness, turning the other cheek, praying for those who persecute you. And you say, Jesus, that makes no sense. Blessed are the... That doesn't work in our world. Blessed are the meek. If we're meek, too much meekness means we're going to end up in trouble. We're going to end up with people, uh, you know, taking advantage of us. We're going to end up being persecuted, Jesus. Don't you know this doesn't work? You don't conquer the earth with meekness, gentleness, and kindness. That'll just get us into trouble. Well, unfortunately, Jesus has a radically different perspective about that too, doesn't he? What does Jesus say? Oh, yeah, you're right. If you're meek, you might get walked on. So guess what? Blessed are you. This is 
sitting at the feet of Jesus for discipleship in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Actually, that's not something to be avoided. It's not like, hey, i got to get rid of meekness because otherwise I might get insulted, persecuted, or lied about. No, Jesus says, clothe yourself in, in, in meekness because actually when that happens to you, you are blessed. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Next week, Chris Lone is going to talk about the, the lion and the lamb in Revelation and how we are meant to follow Jesus with lamb power. Caesar conquers by killing. We conquer by being killed and loving those who come against us. That's actually how we follow the way of Jesus. Blessed are the meek. So, we're not going to learn to do this in one week or one day or one hour. But I think we're now ready for a challenge leading into Easter. We've got just several weeks now until Easter. And we're now ready to read a book with a little bit of help from the wider, greater body of Christ. We're now ready to read a book that can help us start to live out Jesus calling on us with lamb power. And so here's a little challenge for you. I would love for a bunch of you to take me up on this. Let's read through Revelation. We don't often think of Revelation as an Easter book. It's a fantastic Easter book. Let's read through Revelation together leading up to Easter. But let's do it with a little bit of help. I got to have a couple of suggestions here for you, okay? And by the way, for the Mennonites out there, if your last name is Penner, Friesen, Lowen, Dirksen, okay? Both of these commentaries right now are $9.99 on Kindle. You could get both for 20 bucks. Okay? And it's boom, you're using it. Okay? This is Revelation by Ian Paul. By the way, a commentary. Some of you are, not a commentary. Okay, no, you don't have to. It's not in the Bible. You have to have a commentary. Um, but here's how you read a commentary, by the way. Because some of you are going, I, I don't, they're boring. Yes. You don't read this right before bed unless you want to go to sleep. Okay? It could be a sleep aid for some of you who are struggling, okay? Uh, but a commentary is not a book that you just read through. Oh, no, 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 no. A commentary is something you read alongside your Bible when you have your quiet time with the Lord. And then you read a chapter, and you do just a chapter at a time. You just take bite-sized pieces. You read Revelation chapter 1, and then you read, you know, a commentary. What is chapter 1 meaning? As it comes alive... Now you stop and engage the right side of your brain. So now that you're, you're going in a good place, you're not going way off somewhere scary and wacky. You're coming back, you're centered, okay. Oh, that's what God was saying there, okay, to that first century audience. Now, what is he saying to me? Now you pray and you journal and you take it in. Revelation really is a powerful book. And it has the power to transform by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's just a couple of suggestions. Ian Paul's has more detail, if you like more detail. Gordon Fees has a little bit less detail, if you like a little less detail. Or you can do like me, and you can do both. But this isn't your job, so you just pick one, right? So, but I, that would be my encouragement. I actually think Revelation and the Holy Spirit together, leading into Easter, truly has a discipleship power that the Christian church right now desperately needs. Because we're living in a time when everybody feels unmoored and like everything's going crazy. That's exactly what Revelation was written in the midst of. And if we'll take it to heart, 
I think we're going to come out a lot more lamb-like, a lot less fearful, and a lot more pleasing to what Jesus would have us do. So why don't you bow your heads with me, close your eyes, quickly finish downloading one of those commentaries. Father in heaven, thank you for the book of Revelation. Sorry for how we've sometimes gotten way off track from what it's meant to do, which is draw us into worship, draw us into trust. I pray that over these next few weeks leading up to Easter, you would use the words of Revelation to stir in us a deep love for you, Jesus. But more than just love, that you would stir up in us a deep trust in you. That we can trust in you and we can love our enemies and we can turn the other cheek and you will win in the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.